I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens Podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Hello and welcome back. Oh, it's been a nice summer break. We're now on series four, which is lovely. This series, we are focusing on motherhood. So we are kicking this series off with a with a special or one of our honourable mentions with Margaret Beaufort, the originator of the Tudor dynasty. But she's the, quote, mother of the Tudor dynasty. And I think it's not just like a biological distinction because she literally, she's the mother of Henry VII, who is the first king of the dynasty. But also she did so much to get him there. And she said, did so much to further the interests of her family. She fostered and nurtured the political ambitions of her family to the extent that it got them to where they were. So yeah, she's, she's so interesting. And I think you talk about her in so many different ways. Like you said, really, she's a name that we shouldn't really know. Uh, the Beaufort family as a whole were, you know, a family that should have just been on the fringes of history and should have just been an obscure answer to a pub quiz question rather than um, them capturing the throne. So to honour Margaret and go into more detail about just like you said, how influential she was and how much she put her family name into history. We're going to just dedicate this episode to her. And the first half, we're going to talk about her early life and her a little bit more biographically, because we were saying right before we started recording that that's a period of her life that I think is glossed over a lot of the time, like her very early life, even before her first marriage. And then in the second half, we're going to talk about her role as My Lady the King's mother and uh, the more familiar role as the Tudor matriarch. So to get us started, I think it's worth looking at where she comes from, because Henry's major claim to the throne actually comes through her. And I think in true Tudor fashion, it's not straightforward. It's messy and it's fantastic. Um, what I will also say, just as a disclaimer for this episode, is there are a lot, a lot of people with the same name, so you may have to bear with us, and if we hear the name John pop up, I'm sorry, you're just gonna, there's a lot, so. Or Thomas, there are a lot of Thomases. Just once, I'd like a humperdink. I mean, shout out to the, you know, the Tudor boys, they have a Jasper, when, when do you see that name? That's a great name. That is a great name. Anyway, before we get off track talking about him, because he's quite cool and there's a episode probably on a different podcast, all on his own. Bit of background on the Beaufort. So just, just as a whole, as I said, just for some scene setting, the Beaufort family um, actually originate from a affair that John of Gaunt and Catherine uh, Swinford were having back in the 1300s. Because the children were still, they were conceived and born out of wedlock, they were still illegitimate. Because John of Gaunt had other children, mainly the future Henry IV, who, as I'm sure you all know, and um, there's no spoilers here, when he became king after usurping uh, Richard II from the throne, put a limit in place saying that the, the Beaufort children and family were illegitimate up until a point that they couldn't actually inherit the, the crown. So Margaret Beaufort was John of Gaunt's great-granddaughter, right? Uh, yes, that would have been an easier way to say it, but yes, she was. <laughs> 
makes her, you know, distantly related, a cousin of um, King Henry VI, who was the king when she was born. Um, so she was born in about 1443, although that date is slightly disputed, but ballpark, that's about when she was born. And she was the daughter of John Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. So part of this family who are influential and do have status, but their claim to any kind of royal influence is very tenuous. Case in point, John Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset, who a John we will be calling Somerset, uh, has a bit of a falling out with with the king. Yeah, with uh, with John, he got himself into a little bit of hot water um, during one of his. Uh, he actually requested to lead uh, a campaign in France, um, and when he got to France, just basically disregarded all sorts of rules of engagement about how how you're meant to conduct yourself, which in summary was not good, and it made a lot of people very very mad, including the King of England himself, so Henry the Sixth. So much was that disgrace and that, for want of a better word, blunder that he'd caused. John actually died soon after his return to England. And there's a little bit of a controversy surrounding his death, whether or not it was natural causes or whether or, or, or whatever it was, or if it was an actual fact, suicide. So when Margaret was only about a year old, she was starting life off never having met her father and also having her her future be very very uncertain and with the death of her father i think we start the chapter of margaret's life where it gets like her life is just put into the hands of other people and she's constantly kind of chafing against all of the regulations that are set for her by other people because when she is about a year old she is made the ward of somebody else even though her father specified that in the event that something happened to him while he was over fighting in france margaret's mother should look after her the king disregards that because she's such an influential heiress now you know this baby she stands in line to you know inherit all of this land and this title and this property that it becomes important that we keep her where we can see her and we keep her as the quote property of somebody we like so when she was about a year old maybe even three she's actually married um not in any real sense but legally she is married to uh john de la pole yet another john who's the son of her man who's been appointed her guardian so already it's almost like she hasn't even gotten to an age she's an infant where she can exercise any kind of power and it's being taken away immediately like you said, Kate, the, the actions of other people before she's even able to make a decision have already influenced her so much. And I think that is something that we need to bear in mind when we talk about her later in life, because having had that agency taken away, and it won't be taken away from her just once about you know who she's married to or what her life should look like, it's going to have a big impact on people. And Henry VI, as the king, is pretty much primarily responsible for dictating Margaret's life at this point and how she's kind of handed off reflects his interests much more than it reflects hers to the point where the de la pole match and influence is gradually replaced by tutors henry the sixth had two half brothers edmund and jasper tudor and edmund tudor was the earl of richmond 
so he has this great idea that Edmund should marry Margaret. And when she's nine years old, Margaret actually has to make this kind of adult move to pledge herself to marry Edmund Tudor, who is a, a man. Um, you know, she's nine years old. Like, think about what you were doing when you were nine. Not getting married. Not, or, you know, being faced with this man and being like, yeah, cool, that's going to be my husband. And what ends up becoming really unique about Margaret's situation is that the marriage to Edmund Tudor does go through. Edmund and Margaret are married in November 1455. That's kind of normal. Uh, we see younger girls getting married all the time in political marriages where it's like we need to seal this deal. But what you don't necessarily see is the fact that they consummated the marriage right away. Margaret is 12 years old, and that's usually seen as a time when girls are not physically mature enough to bear children. So why on earth are you consummating it? And yet, uh, Margaret becomes pregnant right after the wedding. It's a very uncomfortable situation because even at the time, it was kind of seen as a remarkable thing. But I think the reason that Edmund felt that he had to do it and he had to consummate the marriage and, and get an heir as soon as possible was because the Wars of the Roses were beginning. And Edmund, as the half-brother of the Lancastrian king, I think needed to you know, make sure that if something happened and he died in battle or died because of the war, you know, hint, hint, his bases would be covered. Like I said, it's a time where things change on a whim. Uh, the Tudor line could have gone so quickly. So everything about this is just a perfect storm of things happening at exactly the right time. And you are absolutely right, you know, <laughs> with your hint, hint. Um, Edmund doesn't actually live to see Henry born. He is taken prisoner by the Yorkist forces. I um, mean, he's taken prisoner and is mysteriously never seen again. So I wonder what could have happened. I think <laughs> most people do agree that it was a uh, plague. But it's like, you know, you can imagine that he's being taken prisoner and he's in this, this camp. Uh, diseases are going to be rampant and nobody did anything to stop it. So, yeah. Edmund was actually uh, dead by the time that Margaret prepared to give birth. She was at Pembroke Castle and she began her labors in January 1457. And from all accounts, it was a really dangerous birth for all of the reasons that we just said. And I think it's kind of the most remarkable moment of her life, probably, and the defining moment of her life when she gives birth to her son because she's 13 years old. Her husband is dead. She's being looked after by her brother-in-law, Jasper. But she's really, she's alone and she's physically vulnerable. And she somehow makes it through this birth. Chroniclers later marvel at the fact that she survived this because it was a tra really traumatic incident. As you can imagine, a 13-year-old giving birth and mother and son I think the, a, a very strong bond was forged just by virtue of it being like this very scary process that they probably both shouldn't have survived. I can't imagine well, any of that, if I'm honest. But, you know, going through all of that and then not having fierce maternal instinct, what's worth remembering as well is that she's still very much seen as a prize to be to be had. And, you know, it's now she's now got a target not just on her back, but on, on Henry's back as well. And yet now, like you said, she and Henry, her son, are united by this incident. So it's like all the more reason for her to put everything she has behind him. Like he is her identity now. 
that now her interests were in keeping Henry safe and also keeping Henry's claim safe. Not his claim to the throne, we'll, we'll get to that later, but his claim to his father's inheritance as his father's heir. So almost right away, like she recovers from the birth, she takes a little bit of time to recover from the birth. Henry is given over to the guardianship of Jasper, um, his uncle is you know who's loyal to them and it's margaret i think trusts him enough to know that he's not going to like screw her over like her own wards did as a kid um but she decides to get married again to sir henry stafford in 1458 so she's 14 now a young mother who i think is just looking for a, an arrangement of political convenience and also like you said it's the wars of the roses so she needs that political protection as the war gets even more heated it's just crazy to me, though, that, again, she's 14 at this point. She's been married three times. Here, when you're 14, you're just going into high school. You're a freshman in high school. That's just yeah, now. <laughs> no, nothing. It gets yeah. worse from there, because even though she does have a husband again and that political protection, we kind of see Henry's life begin to mirror her own. Because of the war, um, Henry VI, you know, as we all know, is you know deposed and Edward IV, the Yorkist king, comes onto the throne. And because the Tudors are so aligned with the Lancasters, Edward IV strips them of their lands, so the Richmond lands and Henry's title, and he gives it to um, his brother, George, Duke of Clarence. So suddenly now Margaret is thinking, you know, all of this inheritance is being taken away at the whim of a king, just like Henry VI kind of took away her own inheritance and gave it to whoever he pleased. This is when, like, you know, overprotective mom begins to kick in. Let's be clear, she's not the only one. I think it, everyone's fortunes changed at the drop of a hat, you know, depending on who was king that week. But she's already starting to play a game of chess, I think, in her head of looking forward. Lover or hater, you know, have, have your opinion about her. Margaret Beaufort is an incredibly intelligent person and not just intelligent in terms of she was well educated, but I think she's also emotionally intelligent as well. Enough to be able to put her feelings to one side and just say, we've got to do what we've got to do at this point. You hear a lot about Margaret that she always had huge aspirations for Henry. And like from the moment he was born, it's almost like she had this divine prophecy that he was going to be king. And so she did everything she could to put him in the right place to inherit the throne and kind of be the Lancastrian heir to oppose the Yorkists. But I get the sense in the early days that that is absolutely not the case and that she's more advocating for his interests as the displaced Earl of Richmond. And I think it's it's leading up to a further conversation that we'll probably we'll come back to several times in this episode of Margaret being characterized as this very like ambitious, power hungry woman. When actually, if you look at all of the events within the context of her early life, I think she was just really making sure that Henry got what was due to him. She still sees Henry. He's in the care of other people, but she still gets to see him at least, but she doesn't necessarily have any kind of role in his upbringing. So they're pretty much not strangers, but they don't know each other well at this point. And all the stuff that she's doing is kind of behind the scenes angling. In her late 20s, when she is 28, she becomes a widow again. So her husband dies as, you know, part of the Wars of the Roses. 
and she decides in a very savvy move that she's actually going to marry a York or a Yorkist. But she says she needs a place in the court of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. She needs to keep herself safe. Um, she needs to, you know, be allied with the Yorkist cause through marriage, and she needs to keep her son's interests safe. And this is around the same time that in order to keep him safe, she and Jasper arrange for Henry to go live abroad in France, kind of in exile with Jasper. And it's super interesting because this is where you start to see her as an out-and-out political player. This isn't born of, I'm bored, I want something to do. She's not, you know, manipulative person because she wants to be. She, she becomes politically astute and aware because she has to be. And I think that they're, they're, they're two very different things. And I think sometimes with Margaret, especially, we're so willing to see her as a, almost as a villain and a schemer. She worked really bloody hard to keep herself alive and to kind of keep Henry alive as well. Um, I, ca I can't remember exactly what happened or, you know, the exact story about it, but I know at one point towards the end of Edward the Fourth Reign, I was actually negotiating a safe passage for Henry back to England as the Duke of Richmond and nothing else, nothing more. And it was all scribbled down rather hastily on the back of a, um, a piece of paper somewhere um, that's only just recently been rediscovered. And I mean, we don't know necessarily the nature of her, her character or personality enough to be able to really know what motivates her completely. But she actually becomes really tight with the York Queens. So Elizabeth Woodville actually names her as the godmother of one of her daughters. They're pretty thick, you know, they, they talk a lot. And they're, I don't want to say friends, just because we don't know. But they're, they have a pretty good personal line of communication. Later, during the reign of Richard III, Margaret does serve Richard's wife, Anne, to the point that Margaret carries Anne's train during the coronation. Ever you want to see evidence of soft power being used to its fullest, go and pull up a seat with her um, at those yeah. courts. Because she, I think she was very aware of who she was. And I, I say that because I'd like to think that, not because I know that. And annoyingly, she did not leave a diary to say, I feel like this today. I'm having a bad day. Um, but I hate it. when they do that. But when they she, have to write in their diaries. I know. But she's able to take these relationships and she's even able to strike up a tacit contract with Elizabeth Woodville, Elizabeth of York's mother, and says, you know, when if Henry is successful, um, when he comes back to England, let's get the kids married. This is during the reign of... Richard III. So um, thing, things are getting a little bit yeah. hairy within the York family. There's a lot of division happening. And Elizabeth Woodville seems to very firmly set herself in the opposition camp to the point where she and Margaret Beaufort begin to scheme a little bit. This is really where we see the origins of Margaret thinking like, hey, yeah, Henry could be king. You know, he has a, it's a very, very tenuous claim, but he has a claim to the throne. And if he marries Elizabeth, which, you know, we know that the mothers were getting together on that, then together they would actually be a force that could take on and challenge Richard III. And of course, we know how that unfolds. But it's interesting that this is where we start to see that, like, ambitious political schemer come out 
she tries to basically stage an earlier rebellion on Richard III in the interests of her son and is basically put under house arrest. Um, her At this point, she's married again to, you know, Thomas Stanley, who's a Yorkist. And the king basically says, hey, keep an eye on your wife because she doesn't like me and she's working against me. I don't know. I think it's a nice idea to kind of wonder about, did she actually want him to be the king or were they just left with no other option? And she's like, well, we've got somebody. Yeah, it does happen to be Henry. Why not use him? I think it makes sense that it would be her ambition for her son. Like, obviously, having your son be the king of England sounds like a great idea. I think this is where she becomes the most useful and she exerts that soft power, all that political scheming she's been practicing for the last 15, 20 years. She puts in this idea in people's heads of my son could come over and we could really, you know, turn this around. And that's what happens is she rallies people to Henry's cause while he's over in France. Following on from the the Battle of Bosworth, because um, surprise, Richard dies, and Henry does become king. So I think what we do have is a kind of heartbreaking, beautiful duality of you know Margaret being a mother and Margaret being a, a person and wanting stability. And during his coronation, there's reports of her sitting, you know, front and center, wailing and just sobbing because she's terrified for him and um, terrified for him to become king because of everything that she's just lived through. Um, you know, she's lived through the Wars of the Roses. So it's a very conflicting image, but it also does a lot to, I think, soften her edges for a lot of people and see her outside of that political scheming and that she has a lot of love um, towards her son. Just real quick before we cut this in half and we move on to the next part, um, another potential myth that I wasn't going to bring up, but I feel like we kind of need to just to really quickly shut it down. We all know she didn't have anything to do with the princes in the tower, right? Like, we all know that. We're good, right? We can move on. Margaret's reputation as being like very ambitious and very power hungry, I think really comes out in people's analysis of her role in Henry's court. It's almost like now that her son is king, she kind of uses him as a gateway to power and she tries every way possible to exert her own power and influence. People find it funny that when Henry becomes king, she invents a new title for herself. So at court, she's known as My Lady the King's Mother. She starts to sign her letters. Like previously, she had signed them Margaret Richmond, um, alluding to her title as the Countess of Richmond. But now she begins to sign all of her correspondence as Margaret R., like Margaret Regina, uh, like Margaret the Queen. <laughs> it's, you know, fair. It's a fair sort of assumption to make. But the other thing that interests me about right at the beginning of Henry's reign, one of the first moves that she actually makes that she asks her son to do for her is to give her legal right of power over herself. What it does is it gives her the power to handle herself and her finances and her own lands. Her husband, who technically at this point does have a legal right to do all that for her, suddenly that's taken away and she's in charge of herself. And to me, that says so much more about her and her motivations than like her playing queen. 
this has been such a long time coming for her, you know, and I just feel like this is her moment of saying, this is my time, this is my turn. And for somebody whose life has been completely dictated by her inheritance being handed over to a man by a man, and her son's inheritance being handed over to another man by a man, suddenly it's, nope, what I say goes, I have my own money, I'm in charge of my own money, and you know what? I'm going to refer to myself as the My Lady the King's mother. I'm going to imply that I have a higher status than technically I do because I think she really wanted to make it clear to the court that she is a person of great status, but also she's a person of great esteem in the king's eye. Because I think it's fair to say that even though they didn't necessarily have a close relationship, uh, because Henry was either being taken care of by other people or he was away in France, they didn't necessarily have that close relationship that you would expect. And yet, when Henry becomes king, Margaret is one of the people he trusts the most because he feels like he owes her everything. Like he acknowledges himself several times that all that he is, he owes to her. And far be it for me to say anything disparaging or even remotely less than complimentary about Henry VII. But one of the things we have to remember is that he's coming to this throne not knowing how to run a country. So I think it makes perfect sense for him to then rely on Margaret, who has more experience at Court of England and politics and how to, how to wield power effectively. And you know, he doesn't have to rely on her, but he has that option too. And he, he takes it and he uses it. So much so that, you know, these two have adjoining rooms. To, to most people, that would be seen as an overbearing mother. But I think for these two, they're each other's safety nets. There's this really lovely quote that comes from a letter that Henry wrote to Margaret. All which things, according to your desire and pleasure, I have with all my heart and goodwill given and granted unto you. I should be as glad to please you as your heart can desire it, and I know well that I am as much bounden to do so as any creature living, for the great and singular motherly love and affection that it hath pleased you at all times to bear towards me. Just when you think he can't get any better. I know. He's a lovely, when respectful, I first read Callie, beautiful quote, She's like, oh my god, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> but it just goes to show you that you cannot underscore enough how just these two have a bond. And... It sounds hokey, but that really is what this is. And Margaret is Henry's closest confidant and his closest advisor, the person who he goes to for all kinds of advice. In fact, there's another quote from a Spanish envoy towards the end of his reign, but you get the idea that this is the thing that carries, that the king is much influenced by his mother in his affairs and personal interests. Her reputation has been defined by this almost, and that the the key takeaway that people have for her and about her is that she is overbearing and that she's just, just overplaying her hand, um, and that she's doing everything that she can to muscle in on Henry and Elizabeth's relationship, and that you know she just thinks of herself, like you said, as everything in Queen but name. There's a petty example that has been used that um, Margaret would sometimes only walk half a step behind rather than the full pace in which she was owed. 
So we know that Margaret is exerting influence over Henry in terms of the political. But what's really interesting, especially for the season that we have coming up, is how much power and influence she's exerting over the royal household and how much power she shares with her daughter-in-law, Elizabeth of York. We talked about this a little bit in Elizabeth's honorable mention episode, but I think it's worth reiterating here. You get the idea that these two butted heads a lot. And I think it comes from this myth that's been built up as, of Margaret as this very ambitious person that if anyone was kind of going to be the mother-in-law from hell, it would probably be her. Um, and that she didn't, you know, necessarily like to, quote, share her son with another woman or have to compete with another woman at court. But from all accounts, she and Elizabeth actually were fairly close. And even if they butted heads, which I'm sure, you know, they did at some times, they worked together very closely on a lot of things, whether it was arranging marriages for all of Henry and Elizabeth's children or, you know, how the household was run. I think it's an important thing that that does is that it offsets this idea that, you know, she was just a complete pain to deal with. But um, there's there's some accounts and there's one especially by a, a John Fisher, Margaret's chaplain and confessor um, in her later years, that her household, she ran a very strict household and it was it was very sober, strict and pious and that she'd often be heard repeating moralizing lessons to her staff. Yes, she may have liked things done a certain way, but I think there also has to be an appreciation that she she's seen things, why things have to be a certain way and what happens when when it's not. There is a, a document that is like a set of household ordinances for basically how to run a royal household. And it's everything from etiquette, you know, who should walk into a room first. And it gets very into the nitty gritty and that detail that we know from her own household accounts Margaret was really into. For the intents of our season, it also gets into the queen's household and especially into how heirs to the throne will be delivered. So how the queen should have her confinement, her laying in, um, the procedures that accompany a royal birth. We will talk about them in future episodes, so not going to get into it in too much detail here. But there is a sort of tradition, and it is accepted by many historians, that Margaret Beaufort is the originator of these household ordinances. Not to say that she completely made them up, because they're based on medieval standards of how the royal household is run. Some people dispute this because they think that there's actually not necessarily a direct tie to Margaret Beaufort, but... Like I said, a lot of historians do run with it. So I think worth talking about them as part of her legacy, because these documents were basically how the Tudor dynasty should continue when I'm not here to tell you all what to do. And safeguarding her, her family from, from the beyond. It's her way of leaving something behind. And, you know, like you said, it, it was then used for all, all Tudor births and confinements and things like that. So, yeah, I hope it's her. And I mean, whether your personal interpretation of that is that, man, this woman was overbearing and I can deliver my child however I want. It all goes back to this idea of Margaret being the mother in more ways than one. She is the biological mother of Henry, the founder of the Tudor dynasty. But I think she also took it upon herself to safeguard the dynasty. And I think you see that the most poignantly when Henry VII dies in 1509. 
Margaret actually outlives him by a few months. And her maneuvers following his death, I think, just show how much power and influence she had, but also just how much she was interested in ma- making sure that this all went smoothly. Completely. I know we, we ended the first half talking about her sobbing when it came to Henry becoming king. And when he dies, there is no mention of her crying or, you know, breaking down or taking a beat. Her sole job, like, and it, it almost became, it, it kind of consumed her. Her sole job became securing the next monarch and, to, and organizing the coronation of Henry VIII. And again, just another example of just how much Henry VII really valued her. She was named the executor of his will. It, it wasn't, you know, anyone in Parliament. It wasn't any of his higher his higher nobles. It was his mother, because that's who she was. She's the thing. She's the one who gets things done, and she's the one who he trusts the absolute most. So actually, Henry's death was kept secret for two days while Margaret made sure that that transition happened. Let's keep it quiet for a couple of days while I get Henry's affairs in order. And then I make sure my grandson, Henry, has that, you know, legitimate rise to power. Um, She had actually been kind of pulling strings with him for a while in terms of like, here's who you should be hanging out with. And here's what interests you should pursue and what books you should be reading. So to tie it back into our six queens a little bit more firmly, that includes who you should marry because you you get the idea from a lot of the sources that margaret was into the idea of henry the eighth marrying catherine of aragon and keeping that spanish alliance active you know he was said to be absolutely devastated when she died you, you know him and his grandmother actually had a, a very strong bond he didn't have that person that he could go to and you know speak to about things so he then started his reign having to find his own way without her. Kind of speaks to her, you know, as a, as a softer human being and not someone who is always scheming. And it is, we, we lose sight of when we look at her, you know, through the lens of myths and, you know, kind of coming in at the end of her story where she has that political ambition for Henry VII. So her, her, her end is very sad, but I think it's very touching. Yeah, Henry and Catherine of Aragon have their coronation and Margaret makes sure that we get that done. Five days later, she dies in 1509 in the deanery of Westminster Abbey and she is buried there. You can go see her tomb even today in Westminster Abbey in a place of honor. And like you said, I think Henry VIII's devastation, but then also all that we've been saying about Henry VII's utter reliance on her. For so much. I don't necessarily think that they would feel that way towards her if she was this like overbearing, annoying, like manipulative shrew. I mean, modern men certainly wouldn't tolerate that, but early modern men definitely would not. So I think it just goes to show you that the perception of her through the men in her life, through the two kings in her life, is as this very like wise counselor. For the purposes of, you know, going forward in our show, she has to be considered to have that, like, very influential maternal role. And I think going forward, as we're talking about mothers of the Tudor dynasty, the role of motherhood in the Tudor dynasty, keep her in mind. Because through the ordinances, you know, she may or may not have written them, but through the household ordinances, 
through the memory of her and through her influence and what she handed down, she really shaped the experience of everyone else we're going to talk about in this series. So that's why we thought it would be really important to open with her because she sets the standard. We're going to be coming back to her quite often, probably throughout the series as we talk about the experiences of women. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Kate and I will give you an intro into early modern motherhood and our new series. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. Long live the queens.